Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith filling in for Lucy Nalpotential. If you've consumed any news over the past month, you've probably heard that businesses like restaurants and hotels, for example, want to hire people, but they're having trouble finding workers. I asked you before the break, do you think America has a labor shortage or a wage shortage? And now I pose the same question to our first guest. She is Molly Kinder a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings Institution. She researches and has written extensively on the present and future of work. I have read some of those writings, and we'll be talking about them coming up. She's written especially for about low-wage workers. Molly, welcome to you. Are you a team labor shortage or a team wage shortage? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. You know, I recognize that we're in a unique moment for labor in that workers face a lot of obstacles to getting back to work, which are holding some folks back from re-entering the labor force. But I think more than anything, what we're seeing is in this moment is a reckoning of how poor quality a lot of these jobs are and really the shortage of jobs with decent wages that can provide for a family. So you're on team wage shortage. I'm on team wage shortage primarily, although I accept very much that there are real constraints beyond wages that are holding some folks back. You know, I'm a former sportscaster. I have to weave some sports imagery into our discourse here every now and then. Uh, Let's define some terms. What's the threshold for qualifying as a low-wage worker in America today? And how big of a chunk of the American workforce consists of low-wage workers? So to answer that question, I'm going to cite my brilliant colleagues at Brookings, Martha Ross and Nicole Bateman. They really did the definitive work in defining who is our low-wage workforce in America and how big is this workforce. And what they did was to define what low wage is, they they took the two-thirds of the median wage of a full-time male worker in this country. Um, That translates nationally in 2018 to $16.67 um, an hour. So just over 1650 an hour. But of course, 1650 an hour means different things in different places because we have pretty different cost of living. So to, to take into account that some places are more expensive to live, when they did their analysis to count how many low-wage workers they were, they adjusted. So if you're in Beckley, West Virginia, that low wage looks like a little over $13 an hour. Whereas if you're in San Francisco, it's about $21 an hour. Mm-hmm. And when they counted, this is just before the pandemic, they found that 53 million workers in this country were low wage, which is about 44% of the entire U.S. workforce, mm-hmm. which is huge. That's basically saying nearly one in two workers in this country earns a low wage. Um, and that's before the pandemic. I think what we're seeing now is that the job losses because of this pandemic recession have been so concentrated amongst those low-wage workers. 
that's quite sobering. So certainly when the low-wage workforce catches a cold, America catches a cold in, in some respects. Uh, about two weeks ago, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition released a report asserting that a person needed to make over $24 per hour to afford the vast majority of two-bedroom apartments in America, which means, of course, that minimum wage workers can't afford to rent such a place anywhere in America for the most part. With that as a backdrop, why does anyone think pushing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour will do anything substantial? So I think it's important to keep in mind where we are today with that federal minimum wage. I just said that a low wage worker makes uh, under sixteen sixty seven an hour in 2018. Well, where is our federal minimum wage? It's at $7.25 an hour. That's just extraordinary. That's extraordinarily low. It's nowhere near what we would consider a basic living wage where a person can just even just pay their basic bills, not even talking about saving money or going on a trip or buying anything nice. It's they can't even pay, as you said, rent anywhere in this country on that wage or eat. And if you if you take a person who's trying to support a family and what's striking in the analysis, my colleagues, Martha and Nicole did almost half of low wage workers support children. So if you start thinking about what does it take, what kind of money do you need to earn to just provide the basics for my family, where we are with our our federal minimum wage is just so woefully inadequate. Um, And so I think this is the reason why in the past year you've seen so much of a national discussion on raising that minimum wage, because where we are is simply it's poverty wages for a lot of these workers, and we're nowhere close to where we need to be to lift people to what we would just consider the basic survival wages. You know, Molly, here's something you hear businesses say all the time. They say that people who earn minimum wage uh, wages tend to be kids on first or second jobs getting valuable work experience. You touched on it just now. I just want to just hammer the point home. Uh, What's the data actually say about who our low-wage laborers actually are? That's what's so striking when you look at the at the data. I think we have this prevailing misconception that, you know, it's okay that a fast food restaurant might pay eight bucks an hour because that's a high school kid who needs to get a start on, on, you know, they need their first job and they're living at home. They don't have that many expenses. And while certainly there are some young young people who earn those wages, that is not the typical person who's earning low wages. And Martha and Nicole's work, they found over half, well over half, the majority of low-wage workers are in their prime working years. So think 25 to 55. So, you know, like me and you, we're, we're in the prime of our working years, which means people are trying to support themselves well beyond those early years with their first job on low wages. And I think that is so important for people to understand is try to imagine even $12 an hour, which is a typical, say, a grocery cashier wage, you know, you take that in annual terms, that's like $23,000 a year. I mean, that's it's unthinkable that you'd be able to raise a family on a wage like that. And I think the other thing to point out in this moment where we've been focused on racial equity and, and the reality that women have taken such a hit in this recession is that low-wage workers are disproportionately women. They're disproportionately workers of color. So that economic pain associated with wages that are simply too low is not shared equally. It's it, it disproportionately falls on workers with the least. Molly, you wrote an article for Brookings entitled, Amazon and Walmart have raked in billions in additional profits during the pandemic and shared almost none of it with their workers. 
yes, the same Amazon that was that in which the workers and the and the patrons were thanked by Jeff Bezos, who just went to outer space on a rocket ship that he said they paid for. Uh, let's assume companies like that only understand self-interest and and possibly shareholder and no, not possibly, definitely shareholder interest. What case would you make to these companies, these shareholders, and and other companies that? Treating your workers as disposable, depreciable assets will actually come back on them because it's bad for society. Well, first, I just want to acknowledge it's not only Amazon and Walmart, although certainly Amazon is a perfect example of a company that in this pandemic, their profits are so elevated and their stock price has risen so much that it has enriched Jeff Bezos more than anyone who, of course, used that money to just fly into into space. You know, we've done, my colleague Laura Statler and I have done a lot of analysis on some of the largest employers of frontline workers in the retail industry and beyond grocery stores that have seen just huge profits during the pandemic because people have rushed to go to these big stores to stock up on supplies and shopped online. By and large, a lot of those employers have used those profits to enrich shareholders and have done comparatively a lot less to lift the wages of the frontline workers who have risked their lives in the pandemic, often for well below a living wage. And I think that the case to be made is not is, is, is in one part a moral case. It's if you're if you know if if you're making billions off the backs of low-wage workers who can't even provide for themselves as they're risking their families' lives, there's something just wrong about that. But there's also a self-interest. And there's been some recent New York Times reporting that shows that the strategy at Amazon is very purposely a high turnover strategy. And in some places, they're running out of available workers. And you contrast that to a Costco that pays, you know, over half of Costco workers make more than $25 an hour. They have a $16 an hour starting wage. And their workers stay. They have a very low turnover. They have long tenure. And that costs the company less. So when the Costco CEO explains why they have higher wages, it's not because they're a nonprofit. It's because they see it actually helps their bottom line to retain talent and reduce those turnover costs. Well, I think Target is a for-profit company. And I think you could put Target in that in, in, in that conversation as well as the companies that you know seem to compensate their workers fairly well. Yeah, no, Target has raised their wages last year. They raised their starting wage from $13 to $15 an hour, in addition to giving some hazard pay to their workers. And when you look across the retail space, I mean, Walmart's starting wage is only $11 an hour. And some of the grocery stores that Target competes with have starting wages around $10 and $11. So that makes a big difference. It's important to note that the take-home pay is not just comprised of your hourly wage. Your hours matters as well. And some employers do better or less in terms of how many hours they give their workers. And Target has a reputation of sometimes not giving a lot of hours. So some of their higher wage is undermined by the fewer hours they give. But I think it's a really important point. I mean, Target hasn't had to offer big recruitment bonuses to workers to get them in the door in this labor market because they're already starting at $15, whereas a lot of very low-paid employers have had to jump through hoops and offer signing bonuses and all sorts of perks because they're just not enticing workers through the door. Uh, we've got about five minutes left in this segment, and I, the, the time is haunting me because I've got so much I want to get to with you. Um, I read a fascinating New York Times 1619 Project article by Matthew Desmond. He made the case for all of the most brutal elements of American capitalism, such as doing business by lowest cost instead of by quality of product, uh, employee surveillance, 
the view of workers as expenses to be managed rather than investments to be cultivated. Said all of those things, the hierarchical structure, the hierarchical structure we've come to know in 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 modern capitalism and business, they have their roots in the American slave trade, uh, and 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 the, our first big industry in this country, the uh, the cotton industry. What's your reaction to that? Well, first, I'd say I read the same pieces. I, I love the 1619 Project, and I loved how challenging it made you relook at our present day with some of that historical context. I don't think there's any question that when you look at how workers fare in this economy, and especially in the pandemic, when low-wage work carries deadly risk, um, and you look at who's benefiting from that work in terms of shareholders and CEOs versus workers, we are in a phenomenally unequal place. When times are good, it's the shareholders that primarily benefit, not the workers, even when workers are risking their lives to enable those profits. And as we've seen in the pandemic, when times are bad, whether it's in the hotel industry or you know, the hospitality and leisure industry, it's workers who are the first ones who suffer when they lose their jobs, even when often CEO compensation is protected. And there's a racial, a serious racial underpinning to all of this, because when you look at who comprises that low wage workforce and even at specific companies, if you look at an Amazon, it's disproportionately their workforce is black. I think about a quarter of their workers are black, which is about double what you'd expect given the population. Um, And yet, who are the shareholders? I mean, shareholders who own stock, they're overwhelmingly white and wealthy. Um, same with company boards and and some of the company founders. So I think it's in this moment of racial but also economic reckoning, we cannot look past how much how much racial and economic inequality go together and these very specific decisions of how much to compensate a worker or how much profit to share or whether or not you're going to invest to keep that worker safe. These have really serious consequences that perpetuate um, a very unequal system. I want to go into a little more of your writing, if you can call Twitter writing, which I think in these days you can. Uh, you had a great Twitter thread on July 15th about low wage, how about how certain low wage work jobs are disappearing. You specifically uh, focused on the folks who clean our hotel rooms in between guest days and and that the fact that hotels are are making the decision increasingly that hey, maybe we don't need to clean them as much. Yeah, I think this is a great illustration of some of the concerns I have at this point in our recovery from COVID about how equitable really we're going to see the recovery. We know that the recession was highly unequal, and it was women and women of color in particular who bore the worst job losses. And think of a hotel housekeeper. You know, the, the folks who clean rooms in hotels, they've seen plummeting occupancy, so so many of them have been laid off. Uh almost all women and often immigrants and workers of color. And here we are, when we look out, some of these big companies like a Hilton, they've said very point blank in earnings calls, we want to emerge from this pandemic more profitable, not just to recover our losses, but we want to be more profitable with less labor. And one key decision they're making is ending the default that a housekeeper automatically cleans your room in a hotel unless you put a do not disturb sign. If that happens, that's going to result in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of job losses. 
of jobs that are, in some cases, very good jobs for women. I interviewed several union um, housekeepers last week, and some of them were making $26 an hour with excellent retirement benefits and health insurance. These are women, women of color, immigrants, that if those jobs go away, they might be relegated to a minimum wage job with none of those protections. And so I think it's these kind of decisions that employers are making that have huge impacts on workers um, and on whether or not this recovery when we get to the other side is going to be more or less equitable after all the clapping we did for workers and all the Black Lives Matter protests. It comes down to these decisions about whether or not decent jobs will return. And, I, and I'm very concerned about this particular um, uh, risk for um, in the hotel industry. Yeah, all the clapping and, and all the, the thank yous are, are great, it, it, but, but money matters. <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, actual compensation and actual living standards do matter at the end of the they, day. They do. And I think it's important to point out, I mean, I'm not suggesting that when hotel occupancy is low that, I mean, ho- companies are not nonprofits. They need to figure out how to get through this difficult time. But this is often an excuse by companies to take advantage of this moment to make permanent changes that make them more money but are not good for workers. And I think that's what we have to keep an eye out for. When are companies going to merge with this and say, oh, wow, we've just learned how we can we can get by with doing things that actually customers are not asking for. I mean, I certainly want my room clean. That's Me not too. the lesson of the pandemic is less clean. And, and they're going to find ways to, to come out of this in ways that are not equitable. Um, and I think this is my concern um, with some of these decisions. And we're seeing it as well with technology and some of these permanent changes. Molly, we've that- got to take a break. I'm sorry to cut you off there. This is Where We Live. I'm John Henry Smith. And after the break, we'll be back with Molly Kinder. She's a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings Institution. We'll also be joined by Scott Dolch from the Connecticut Restaurant Association, as well as by Brandy Killerin co-owner of West Hartford's Bird Code Hot Chicken. Join the conversation on the future of low-wage work. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith filling in for Lucy Nalpatashel. Today, we're talking about the future of low-wage work. Now, you can share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
With me for the duration of the show is Molly Kinder. She's a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings Institution. She researches the present and future of work, especially for low-wage workers. Molly, I'm about to play a very relevant clip featuring President Joe Biden. Before I do, do you give him a thumbs up or a thumbs down so far regarding his level of allyship to America's low-wage workforce? I give a thumbs up. I'd like to see Congress enact some of the things that Biden has proposed, like a higher minimum wage, but I think he's absolutely centered his administration on workers and low-wage workers. All right. With that as a backdrop, on to our Joe Biden clip. Now, when responding to questions about the current labor shortage at a press conference last Thursday, President Biden responded with some very direct advice on how to correct the problem. I'm not being critical, y'all. I really mean this. It was legitimate questions you're asking me. Asking me, well, you know, guess what? Employers can't find workers. I said, yeah, pay them more. Saying the quiet part out loud. Now, of course, a heaping helping of complaints President Biden was responding to regarding not being able to find workers have come from the food service industry. With us now is the executive director of the Connecticut Restaurant Association, Scott Dolch. I couldn't help but wonder, Scott, what you were thinking as President Biden said the words, pay them more. Uh, Can Connecticut restaurants pay their workers more to come back? Well, first and foremost, sorry, John Hunter, thank you you so much for having me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm sorry this morning. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think my initial reaction, and obviously listen to Molly speak as well, um, this morning, I think our industry as restaurants um, have been hit extremely hard. Obviously, we talk about Amazon and Target and some of the bigger boxes, but from a restaurant side, these 16 months um, have have been, you know, we've seen 110,000 restaurants across the country close. And you could say, hey, pay them more. Our restaurants are. Our restaurants are, you know, in the state of Connecticut, our minimum wage goes up in, up to $13 on Sunday. Um, it's going to go up to $15, but our restaurants are paying well above that and still not able to get uh, the workers that they need um, to provide you know, the demand that's there, which is great. We have great demand back where we were a few months ago, but um, they're working on such short staffs um, because, of, because of the challenges of, of you know, we're about 26,000 jobs short in the state of Connecticut in the hospitality sector. And we're doing, our restaurants are doing everything they can to try to attract um, attract those people back. And we know there's over 100,000 people still on unemployment in the state of Connecticut. Well, you say doing everything you can beyond. So what wh- what would you say restaurants are doing beyond paying them more? Well, I mean, you, like we talked about, you've tried incentive bonuses, you look at, you know, growth opportunities uh, for people. But I mean, I think that the challenge is <clears throat> understanding, you know, what these people are making as well, you know, in our industry. I could talk specifically to the restaurant side, when you look at the front of house, um, you know, the average server across the country makes anywhere between $26 and $28 an hour. Um, you know, when you look at people like to say, oh, the tip credit is only $638 or $823 for bartenders, but their actual take-home wage is between $26 and $28 an hour. And that number has actually gone, gone up um, over the last few months because people are tipping more coming out of the pandemic. Unfortunately, people, the servers and bartenders are having to service more people because there's less help. Um, but that is a great opportunity. It's really a buyer's market for people to go work. But I also think on back of house, you're seeing wages increase down here in Fairfield County, you know, dishwashers. And I've seen jobs posting for 17, 18, 19, $20 an hour um, just to try to get them in. And, and they're also having an increase. Let's not forget about the people that did help these restaurants survive, the workers that that have come back 
trying to help them by increasing their wages because you don't want to hire someone walking in the door, you know, at some level and not take care of the people that have that have been with you for so long. Uh, just to follow up, uh, you said, 20, what did you say, 24 to 26 or was it 26, <clears throat> 28 dollars 26, an hour? 26 to 28 dollars is the median, the average um, wage that a server takes home. And that is that is a that is a national number. And we know in Connecticut, we have one of the largest tip credits. We are the only state with a bartender wage of 823. Our tip credit is six uh, 638. So understanding that, you know, for the front of house, it's a great opportunity to come get a job. You have flexible hours, you can work. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing people come back, but you know, we're trying to also look at the back of house, which is increasing as well, um, those, those wage rates and, and what they're making. Well, now just to clarify, I, now ZipRecruiter, for example, their 2021 survey says the average waiter server wage here is about 1585 per hour. And I assume that number is taking into account the state's required $12.13 minimum into account. Why, why the discrepancy, do you think? I, you know, I can't speak, you know, I can, I can speak to, you know, the National Restaurant Association who I work so close with and the numbers that are, that are run. And, and I have, you know, well over a hundred restaurants. I, I deal with this at the state level all the time. I can speak for the state of Connecticut um, where I bring in actual real data of what our servers and bartenders and casual, not fine, fine dining restaurants. You look at fine dining, you have some servers that are making between 33 to $38 an hour. But even in the casual uh, restaurants, you have, um, you know, we've seen that where they're making 28, 29, even in diners. There's a you know, chips diner that has five uh, diners here in Connecticut. Their average server last year and in pre-pandemic, I'm sorry, 2019, made 27, 22 an hour. So I think that understanding that that sector of our industry is an opportunity to, to make well above these numbers we're talking about, livable wage, you know, being able to, to take care of a family in the state of Connecticut. Obviously, there's pockets where cost of living is really high, um, but there's also other areas of the state like the the eastern, northeastern, you know, the quiet corner where it's a little bit different um, on cost of living. So um, there's, there's, you know, looking at these numbers, but I, I would still say to anybody, you know, the front of house, and no one would argue this, front of house workers in our, in our industry are sometimes are really the highest paid. And we're trying to find ways, and as the head of the association, how do we also help back of house, and how do we provide not only wages but more, you know, health insurance? Um, working on a 401k program through, through the association, other ways, you know, financial literacy. Trying to find other ways to help everyone, you know, get make their way up through this. It's not just about John Henry. It's not just about a starting wage or a minimum wage. Like, how do you grow in our industry? And I think people lose sight of that. One in three Americans have worked in the restaurant industry at one point in their life. Um, but owners, operators, usually a majority of them, eight and 10 of them started out at a dishwasher or a line cook and worked their way up. Um, and then other people go and, and do it because they, they are in college, that they're you know, a, a single mother and they, they want to have that flexibility to make some money, but also um, you know, may, might move on to another job, but that's okay um, in, in, our, in our world. But there is opportunities to make a really good living within the restaurant industry, especially in Connecticut. Molly, what do you make of everything Scott just said? Well, I think Scott is illustrating what is really positive for workers in this moment in that because, especially in these industries like the restaurant industry that went from, you know, really shut down to a large extent to suddenly opening and needing to staff up quickly, this has provided a moment that workers have more leverage. They have more bargaining power. They can be choosier. Um, because there's jobs hiring everywhere. So someone who might have historically been a server or um, back of the house 
has other options right now. And I think, you know, you've seen a lot of really good reporting. Um, I'm a former server myself and a bartender, so I know the industry as well. You know, I think this has been a moment where people have paused and said, do I want to go back to whether it's the pay or the unstable hours or the stress um, you know, sometimes restaurants are, are known for having not great working environments, um, no benefits typically. People don't necessarily get health insurance. So this is a moment where I think workers have a little bit more power and leverage to be to rethink, do I want to be in this industry when other industries are hiring? And I think Scott is showing what's really powerful, which is that restaurants are really thinking hard about how to meet what workers want. And you're going to see very tangible changes because of that. And I think, again, the re- and Scott's absolutely spot on. It's not just the starting wage. It's the working conditions. Is there? Can you make a career out of this? Can you support yourself? Is this an environment that's that's a good quality job? Um, so I think we still. I mean, I, frankly, I think we have a ways to go in a lot of these industries to really provide the kind of things workers want. But it's a moment where things are starting to change, and employers are are working hard to try to figure out to, how to meet the needs of workers. I'd like to bring Brandy Killerin into this conversation right now. She and her husband, Phil, have opened up what I've heard is Central Connecticut's first Nashville hot chicken restaurant over in West Hartford. Brandy, are you there? And am I right about that? Is Bird Code Central Connecticut's first? Hi. Yes. Uh, good morning. I'm not sure if we're the actual first. There are a couple of other Nashville hot chicken places that have opened, but we definitely strive to be the, the freshest and the best. <laughs> wow, it's, you, the pictures on your website look delicious. You want to make a you, oh, you, you make you. a vegetarian want to give up that lifestyle for a day. I got I've got to tell you, it looks fantastic. Wow. Uh, you're probably yes, yes, absolutely. You're probably quite aware, as, and Scott just mentioned it, that the minimum wage in Connecticut goes up to I believe thirteen dollars on Sunday. Uh, but is it true that you and your husband are already paying your 30 employees at Bird Code $15 per hour with an eye towards uh, perhaps paying them as much as $20 an hour in the near future? Yes, that is the plan. Um, my husband and I, when we were developing this concept and, and really thinking about you know, how we wanted to operate within the community of West Hartford, um, our first thoughts were always to our employees. We do have a history of we owned other franchise locations uh, in Connecticut, so we have a lot of experience with employing a large amount of people and really kind of listening to our team and trying to understand what their needs are. So when we opened in November, which was still during you know the height of the pandemic, which is a scary prospect for any restaurant operator or really any business, yeah, Um People and our staff are our first customers. So those are the people that we think of first. So we started off with developing a model that we could sustain a full compensation model of $15 an hour. So we guarantee $15 an hour for every employee uh, since November when we opened, uh, when they walk in the door. And we provide sick time. Um, and we're, we're really a people company. Uh, we really focus on, you know, building culture and you know, making sure that we can do everything that we can do, yeah, to to pass on all of the profits and everything to everybody that's involved. So it's one team, one goal, and and we all strive for the same thing. So uh, listening to your explanation there, I mean, it, it it sounds like there are somewhat altruistic reasons for doing this. I mean, to to what degree did you did you also do this because you you benchmarked against what other companies, what other restaurants were paying and said, okay, here's how we could beat them on, on that front to get the best people. 
Yeah, well, as you know, some of your other you know people have mentioned, uh, we, my husband and I, started off in those positions. We started off as dishwashers. We started off as people in in low wage jobs. So we understand, you know, where that you know comes from, and we understand what the mentality was, you know, in other places where we worked. So what we wanted to do was develop a concept and develop a labor model that financially made sense. So you'll see small differences in our restaurant, which is. Um, we are a fast, casual environment, so there isn't really a separated front of house and back of house. Um, so, and we split and divide the work up uh, between everybody more on an equal basis. Um, and yeah, and we really leverage technology to try to make everything that we do in the restaurant easier for the employees to manage. So, yeah, and altruistic. I don't know if it's altruistic. We just are members of the community. We service our community. And we service not only, you know, our customers that walk in the door, but our employees are our first customers. And they're our most important customers. Because if they can't feel like they're coming to work and, you know, coming to a place where they can thrive and learn and hopefully gain skills that will move them on to their next positions, um, then kind of what's the point? Well, you just mentioned that your, your restaurant is more of a fast, casual type of model. Can I safely assume that means that your employees don't get tipped and you don't have to factor that into your equation as to how to compensate them? Well, they can receive tips, absolutely. And tips are split up amongst all employees, everybody equally, just depending on how many hours they work. So if customers would like to tip based on amazing service or the amazing food, we absolutely pass that on. And that does help us as restaurant operators to run a full compensation model. So the average employee actually makes over $16 an hour because they do get tips as well. And what we're striving for is we want to get everybody up to $20 an hour. That's what we're looking to do. Have you and your husband had to adjust your menu offerings or your prices to accommodate higher wages? Uh, we have slightly, and it's not specifically higher wages um, only or exclusively higher wages. It's also commodity costs. Commodity costs have, have skyrocketed. You know, for example, you know, one of the, the main products that we use as we are a fried chicken restaurant is, is oil, and the commodity costs on oil have doubled uh, in the past wow. six months. So it is difficult for everybody to navigate. And, you know, the restaurant industry has been hit so hard and looking for, you know, a great team of employees, you know, is still extremely difficult no matter who you are. Um, But yeah, we try to navigate that as well as we can. Yeah. And Scott, I can imagine that that's that's probably a refrain you're hearing uh, consistently from from I want to call them your constituents, the people you represent with the (laughs) Connecticut uh, Restaurant Association. Um, I want to hear in general what you and Molly, you as well, what you think about Bird Code's wage structure here. Uh, Scott, do you? Yeah, do you, why, why, I'll be happy. I'll be happy to go first. I, I, yeah. love, I love hearing Brandy and Phil, uh, what they've done. And I know they're looking to try to expand, but their model and trying to, you know, thinking about, uh, I say this a lot, our, our staffs, the majority of our restaurants are family. One of the hardest times for any of these restaurateurs was, that first three weeks of the pandemic, telling their staffs they had to they had to leave and they had to go because they, they couldn't stay open, they didn't know what to do and how they took care of their employees. And the only way, we're in the service industry, the only way a restaurant is successful, doesn't matter how great your food is, your staff has to be a part of that. And they're providing that service to the customers and how you can find ways to build the culture that Brandy's talking about is so important. And I, I drive that message home all the time, but she also hit on a great point. like. 
our industry nationally in good times works on four to 6%. That's the profit margin. Um, we had 16 months of loss through a pandemic. The, these are small, independent, locally owned businesses that lost so much and are trying to get back on their feet. And they're yes, they're having to increase labor costs like you're hearing brand new these models. But the other th element that's playing a role right now is the food cost and the commodities. You're seeing, you know, a 35 to 40 percent increase in commodity costs across the board, double with oil. And the last thing they want to do is push that right. price to, to, to hi have higher wages or to have you know, th those profit margins are getting squeezed, if at, if any at all. And I think that's my big fear right now is the local independent restaurateur what they're dealing with and how hard they're working. They're not as a shareholder, you know, I, I don't want to pick on Amazon or Bezos going up into the brandy and filler in their restaurant every day. They're working as hard as everybody else to survive. And I think people need to understand as an industry, you know, we are trying to, to do everything we can, but right now we're still not out of the woods of trying to survive this pandemic and hope these independent restaurants can see the other side and make it through. Molly, what do you make of what you just heard? Well, I mean, I just echo Scott. I, I, you know, I think it was really inspiring to hear from Brandy and to hear just how hard they're working to come up with a business model that, as Scott said, you know, addresses the difficult climate that we're in, um, but is really good for workers and both the sort of the level of pay, but also the predictability of it. And it's just extraordinarily encouraging. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have no trouble you know, they have a lot less trouble finding workers even in this tough environment because what they're what they're offering is um, is really meaningful. Uh, Scott, do you get the impression that restaurants are biding their time until the federal unemployment benefits run out on September 6th? Brandy, uh, I'd certainly like to hear your opinion on that as well. Uh, maybe with the calculus being that once the once that largesse runs out that workers will be happy to come back and work for their old rates under their old conditions. Uh, I guess I'll take that first one. And, and maybe if I ever, ever chance to say something back to the president, you know, pay people more. I think the other side is that that September 6th date has, has definitely played a role on in our industry across the country. Um, we've seen 24 other states that have moved that date up of, you know, cutting off the $300 extra unemployment. And I've said this to my governor I was with him on Monday. I said, you know, we've never in a time, even during recession or anything else, we've never given more than just the, the current unemployment. We never had a federal bonus. I understood why we had it during a pandemic, but we've now in the state of Connecticut have been open for more than two months. Businesses fully open. Jobs are there. We're hiring. And I think that is something we hope. I don't believe it's the only factor. There's many other factors that are that are that are not getting the hundred ten ten thousand plus jobs that need to come back, the unemployment people in the state. But I do hope that you know, we need to start to encourage and that September 6th date is coming. We hope more and more people start to look for jobs, helping Brandy and Phil and all these other restaurants make it because it has definitely played a role here in Connecticut. And we hope that we, we see a big spike in jobs um, back into our industry, hopefully over the next uh, two months, I guess. Hey, well, Brandy, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Brandy, because I, I just want to get this in. Um, you know, again, you've heard the we've heard the narrative a great deal that yes, I mean the three hundred dollars that's keeping people at home on the couch and not working. Do and we understand that the pressures that the restaurant industry is in with the thin margins and the higher commodity costs. In your estimation, does the restaurant industry uh, have any growing to do, any growth to do uh, to make their to to make a, a life and a career? in the, the server business and in, in, in the restaurant business, something that's fulfilling for, for people. 
Yeah, John Henry, I, I think it's a great conversation. I love, you know, listening to Molly as well and, and looking up a lot of her, her articles and stories. I think from my side, as the head of the association, you know, this pandemic has taught us a lot. Um, and I think we want to try to figure out creative ways to to have growth and help people, you know, use this industry as a stepping stone and a platform to to maybe be an owner someday or, do you know, make a great living staying in the industry. Or maybe you go somewhere else, that's okay. And I think there are, there's, there's always, you know, there are some bad actors as we talk about it all the time, but I think there's so many good actors that are trying to find, like Brandy's talking about their, what they're paying, trying to find things with healthcare, trying to find other ways to take care of their employees and their staff because they used to be that. I think that's, that, that's what also is so special about our industry. The vast majority of our owner operators, these local independent businesses, they started out on the line. They started out as a dishwasher. They know what that's like and they want to provide an opportunity for their own staff to maybe be where they are someday. And I think besides the fact that they're going through the stress of trying to have their own business in this, you know, hundred year, you know, flood of a pandemic survive, they're always still thinking about others. And that's what restaurants are about. They're about their community. They're about giving back. You just saw what, saw what they did over the last 16, 18 months. It's inspiring. And I think we still have a long way to go, but it's a great conversation to continue as the head of the association to find other ways to help this industry the viewpoints of others, perception, but also how do we make it better for everyone that's in it? Scott, real quick, we got about a minute left. I just want to ask, uh, wage theft has been an issue in this industry. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, bringing people, bringing waiters on, uh, on into into the restaurant early when they when they don't count for, for uh, during their normal hours, so they won't have to pay them like a normal minimum wage. That's that we know we both know that has happened. What is your organization doing? And a, maybe just a one sentence answer is your what is your organization taking steps to 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 get to to quell wage theft in the industry? One hundred percent. I think quickly we're, we're trying to be making sure we 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 highlight the good actors and we we target them and and look for bad actors and make sure that we make they understand what they can and can't do and not take advantage of their staffs. Um, I think that that's a very small percentage, but the ones that are, I'm an advocate to make sure even in this pandemic, I use the analogy of the challenges with people breaking rules in the pandemic, it hurts our whole industry. I don't want to have one bad actor that can hurt the perception of everybody. And let's find ways to make sure that's not happening, um, you know, and, and hope to quell it as best we can. I want to say thanks to my two restaurant industry insiders for their insights this segment. Scott Dolch and Brandy Killerin, uh, your new West Hartford spot, Bird Code, specializes in Nashville hot chicken sandwiches. Best of luck to you both. And Molly, I know you're going to stay with us. Uh, we have got to go to a short break. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm John Henry Smith, in for Lucy Potential. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith filling in for Lucy Nalpotential. Today, we're talking about the future of low-wage work with Molly Kinder, David Ruben, David M. Rubenstein, don't want to forget the M, fellow at Brookings Institution. Now, another industry having trouble getting enough people. We just talked about the restaurant industry in the last segment. Now, we're going to talk about health care. 
Joining us now to talk about workers in the healthcare industry is Rob Burrill, president of SEIU 1199, a local union that represents more than 29,000 healthcare workers in New England. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I understand SEIU 1199 is currently in contract negotiations with the state on behalf of over 10,000 caregivers uh, that are funded by the state of Connecticut. You, we looks heretofore we've avoided a couple of of works, you know, p- planned possible work stoppages. Uh, how are negotiations going? How pleased or not pleased are you with how previous negotiations have come out? Uh, well, look, I think the first thing to understand is that the, the, the folks in the long-term care industries, home care, nursing homes, group homes, uh, really do God's work. Uh, and, and there's a crisis in these industries that are uh, privately operated but publicly funded through Medicaid tax dollars that predates the pandemic. Um, you know, very, very low wages. Uh, most folks are, are in a position where they can qualify for public assistance. Um, majority black, brown, and female workforce um, and, and, you know, during the course of the pandemic, the strains on these workers have been really, you know, indescribable. It's been physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Um, you know, folks operated with, without uh, any PPE for weeks and in some cases months. Uh, folks had to resort to, to wearing trash bags or buying their own PPE. Uh, thousands of our members have been sick. Uh, they brought the virus home to their families. Uh, two dozen of our members have died, and an equal number of, of, of folks in their families who are not caregivers themselves. Um, so we are hoping that the contract negotiations that we're in make really, really significant progress towards making these jobs uh, livable wage jobs uh, that, that provide people with a, a secure retirement and health insurance. Uh, not a single one of the 10,000 home care workers we represent uh, has health insurance uh, through uh, the Medicaid waiver program. So, uh, you know, you can see that, that for, for things as basic as uh, health care and retirement, these health care workers uh, are actually trapped in poverty themselves, despite the fact that these are our, our public tax dollars that pay for these services. Molly, uh, I know you've done so much research on low, the low-wage workforce. We've got about five minutes left until the end of our show. Uh, just what has your research uncovered uh, about the, the, the healthcare industry, and how, and how shocking is it that, that, boy, these people that we depend on so much are so poorly paid? Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to just applaud everything that was just said about, you know, they're the heroes, the sort of unsung heroes of this work. Um, I've interviewed actually a lot of 1199 members in nursing homes as well as home health aides. And there, I, I can think of almost no more great example of an essential worker in this pandemic who has truly done heroic work protecting society's most vulnerable, our elderly, our, you know, people who have conditions. And yet these jobs, which are some of the fastest growing jobs in the entire country. I mean, over a million jobs are projected to be added just in these direct care roles alone. And yet these jobs, which are so valuable to society in a pandemic, but well beyond and are the future of work are really, really poorly paid. And also, as was just stated, come without benefits. The idea that you're providing for someone else's health care and you yourself don't have it, you don't have benefits, you're making poverty wages, and, you know, this is a different story than the story that we talked about with some of these big giant retail companies that have shareholders. Ultimately, to improve this situation, we need policy to change. We need more money put into Medicaid programs. You know, there's a President Biden is trying to push in an infrastructure bill to get something like $400 billion more for care workers. 
um, which would increase wages. Um, at the state level, more money has to be put in. So I think this is just such a crucial workforce, uh, you know, women workers of color who are providing this very essential service. But as a society, we are not investing back in them in nearly enough. And it is the future of work. This is a job that's growing and could be a decent job that's both fulfilling emotionally, but actually provides what workers need. Rob, have you seen a mass exodus uh, the people leaving that industry and not coming back after the pandemic? And what's it going to take, if that's the case, to get them back? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, folks uh, have left the long-term care workforce in in droves. Um, you know, the, the the workers do not have quality health insurance in many cases. They are poorly paid, as as Molly just stated. Uh, they were without a PPE, and so they were. How poorly know, paid? I'm sorry. How poorly paid are they? Like, give it, give us a flavor. Uh, you know, uh, home care workers make sixteen twenty-five an hour. No health insurance. No retirement. Five six days per year. Uh, nursing home workers, uh, you know, have a, have a the, the, the most recent contract is going to get them to uh, sixteen twenty-five this year, and over the span of the contract to twenty dollars an hour. Uh, but you're still talking about folks who, at those wage levels, have to work two and sometimes three or more jobs uh, just to pay the bills. And so there's been a lot of rhetoric around essential workers, um, but it, it's not just the question of benefits that's left made people leave the workforce it's been the lack of ppe it's been the workers getting sick themselves Uh, it's been the overall undervaluing of a black brown workforce to care for uh, the elderly the disabled and low-income people themselves those are not groups in our society that have a premium paste placed on their work uh, and even on their personhood okay and so you know we saw an uprising last summer uh, 30 million people coming into the streets to say that black lives don't matter. Well, the overwhelming majority of the 24 workers in our union who have died in the course of the pandemic have been black themselves. Okay. And so, uh, you know, we are, I think, at a point where we're seeing a, a real national conversation begin around what type of value we place on uh, work performed by long-term care workers, uh, essential workers generally, uh, and working class folks who are, again, disproportionately black and brown and, and get the short end of the stick consistently unless they have the means to fight uh, to, to, to get a, a premium placed on the work that they do through having a, a powerful union. So Rob, that's what we were attempting to do. I'm go- I'm, Rob, I'm going to have to end it there. I'm sorry for the uh, shortened segment there. Thank you so much for weighing in. Rob Burrill, president of SEIU 1199. Molly Kinder of the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for your time. I am John. Oh, thanks to Scott Dolch and Brandy Killerin, by the way, for their contributions. I'm John Henry Smith. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Thanks for listening. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app.